1993, director Joe Dante released Matinee, a comedy centering upon a B-movie director, played by John Goodman, promoting a trashy science fiction movie during the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The main characters are a bunch of small children, who'd be roughly Dante's age at the time. They attend the premiere of the film to briefly find some escape from both their personal troubles and also the apocalyptic political turmoil brewing in the backdrop of their lives that they have no direct power over. We often talk about how 1950s science fiction is almost exclusively dealing in Cold War metaphor, and Matinee is not subtle about drawing parallels between the atomic insect monster in its film within a film, and the dire nuclear standoff that almost wiped out the human race in real life. The climax of the film involves the movie simulating an explosion that genuinely terrifies its audience. They then flee outside to realize that everything is fine and they had fallen for a cinematic magic trick. Once again, Matinee is not a subtle movie. Goodman's character in Matinee is clearly based upon William Castle, a producer-director who spent his life grinding out cheaply made thrillers and promoting them with outlandish gimmicks. His output was knowingly mired in the trappings of lowbrow genre crap, but Castle was both a competent craftsman and a self-aware guy who didn't take himself too seriously. As such, many of his films are fun to watch, and a few have escaped the disposable nature of grindhouse cinema to become minor gems, if not culturally significant in the Library of Congress parameters of the term. For this episode, we will be talking about House on Haunted Hill from 1959, arguably Castle's most well-known work. We will be carving out his rather unique position in the history of 20th century film. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello. This was your pick. Well, you you, you wanted to do one of the um, various films in the web of the Hill House uh, franchise. Oh yes. So I gave you like four or five of them. Like any <clears throat> anyone, pick one of them. <laughs> and I went with um, this one because Vincent Price is the lead, and we haven't talked about Vincent Price on an episode featuring you yet. I and I love Vincent Price. Yeah, I mean, he's one of your core pop culture icons. He really is. When I was in high school and as a teenager, I was obsessed with collecting like really cool like Phil and Grandpas, and Vincent Price was definitely one of those. Yeah, so what, what is it about Vincent Price that appealed to you? He is so delightfully campy for a heterosexual male. Yeah, that basically boils it all down, doesn't it? Think about it like this. like If you were to walk into a room in a house and unexpectedly a man in a bathrobe approached you the only time that isn't like an intimidating thought or like you know you're like i don't feel safe is if it's vincent price in which case you'd be like this is fine he taught elvira how to cook fish in the dishwasher you can't be dangerous (laughs) anyways plot recap Price is playing Frederick Lauren, an eccentric millionaire who invites five people to a party that he is throwing for his fourth wife, Annabelle, in an allegedly haunted house that he has rented. He promises to give each guest $10,000 under the stipulation that they stay the entire night in the house after the doors have been locked at midnight. All of the windows are barred and there are no phones or radios to use. Ryan, would you go to a party that, like, doesn't even start until midnight? I'm 38, so no. I don't think I'd do it for $10,000. I mean, maybe $10,000 in 1959 money. Hell, even in now, money times are tough. 
Anyways, the guests include test pilot Lance Schroeder. They make a big thing out of him being a test pilot, even though that is not relevant to a haunted house movie. Uh, newspaper columnist Ruth Bridges. Psychiatrist Dr. David Trent, who specializes in hysteria. Hysteria? In the 19th century anti-feminist version of it. Uh, <laughs> Nora Manning, who works for one of Lauren's companies. And it's pointed out that after her husband got into an accident, she's the only one that could provide for the family and therefore is quite desperate. And then the house's owner, Watson Pritchard, who's the first person we meet. His severed head tells us about uh, the horrors awaiting us in the opening preamble. The reliable man. Yeah, all are strangers to both the Lorans and each other. At least that's what they say. Their only commonality being their lust or desperation for the money. Uh, the Lorans themselves have a tense relationship, as we notice when they are initially talking to each other. Frederick is convinced that Annabelle tried to poison him to acquire his wealth, which Annabelle somewhat evasively denies. <laughs> that banter, though. Like, honestly, that could have been the whole movie and I would have been happy. I thought it was playful flirting at first. I I'm not convinced that it's not. <laughs> Frederick attributes his suspicions to paranoia and jealousy. Watson, however, believes that the house is genuinely haunted by the ghosts of those murdered there, including his own brother, whom he claims to have spent one night there before he was almost dead and found the next morning. He then gives a tour of the house, including a vat of acid that is still somehow in the basement, which a previous resident used to kill his wife. That's an heirloom, Ryan. That's a family treasure. When Lance and Nora remain behind to further explore the basement, Lance is locked in an empty room and struck on the head, while a menacing ghost confronts Nora. Which he had coming, because Nora tried to leave twice, and he kept her from leaving. Yeah, Lance just keeps doing that throughout the picture. Annabelle privately warns Lance that her husband is scheming something, and that she suspects him of murdering his second and third wives after the first wife mysteriously disappeared. The guests then learn the party's rules downstairs, and each of them are given a Colt Model 1903 pocket hammer for protection, you know, for the ghosts. Which fit really, really well in those cute little coffins. Yeah, Vincent Price had, lo well, I'm sorry, Loner, <laughs> had put all of the guns in, like, little specialty coffins, and he just hands them to each guest, even though none of them have holsters. There's just no gun safety on in this movie. If I ever do a sleepover... That's how I'm handing out the party favors. <laughs> Having encountered further apparitions, Nora decides against staying the night, but the caretakers lock the doors five minutes early, taking that option out of her hands. Hearing a scream, Lance and David find Annabelle's corpse, suspended to suggest that she has hanged herself, but the absence of a purge immediately arouses suspicion of murder. Nora then confronts Lance and tells him an unseen assailant strangled her and left her for dead. In light of Annabelle's warnings, they both suspect Frederick. He then tells her to remain out of sight so that her attacker will still think that she is dead. Lance and David propose that everyone stay in their rooms and shoot anyone who enters to survive the night. <laughs> Lots of things. Thus, the innocents will have no reason to leave their rooms, and a good reason to stay inside them, and the killer must stay put or admit guilt, in theory. And then get shot like a whole bunch. Nora then sees Annabelle's ghost outside her window and uh, immediately flees the basement. 
Aroused by the ghostly sounds, David concludes that the killer is running about and proposes that he and Frederick split up to search the house. Lance uncovers a secret room at the end of the second door floor hall, but the uh, door shuts behind him once he enters, trapping him inside. Much to our great joy. David instead meets with Annabelle, who had faked her death using a hanging harness and sedatives. Turns out that the two are secretly lovers. They had orchestrated all of the various mishaps to manipulate Nora into killing Frederick in hysteria. Dun, dun, dun. Nora, seeing Frederick enter the basement with a gun in his hand, does indeed shoot him as they predicted. After she flees, David slips in to dispose of Frederick's body in the vat of acid, which seems to go against his plans of having Nora shoot him. You know, Nora shot him and then dragged his body to the acid because it wasn't premeditated. She did it in hysteria. Maybe she shot him while he was coming down the stairs and then he casually rolled all the way across the room into the heirloom acid. Anyways, the lights go out and we hear a splash in the heirloom acid. Annabelle, like, a, like an sound. <laughs> Annabelle walks to the basement to confirm that her husband is dead, but then a skeleton rises from the acid, accuses her of murder in Frederick's voice, and shoves her into the vat. Frederick emerges from the shadows at this point, holding a puppeteer control unit that he had used to manipulate the skeleton, revealing that he had known of their plot all along. But it was like girdle attachment to himself. It was amazing. After Nora, Watson, and Ruth release Lance from the secret room, Nora tells them that she shot Frederick. When they arrive in the cellar, Frederick explains that he had loaded her gun with blanks, and that his wife and David plotted to kill him, and that they both met their ends in the vat of acid. He says that he is ready for justice to decide if he is innocent or guilty, but he's a millionaire and can easily buy a jury. Uh, Watson remains convinced that the house is haunted, however, with David and Annabelle now added to its rank of ghosts, and that he will be the next victim. The end question mark. Well, but also, too, he looks right at the camera and he's just like, you, you're next, like, you and me next. Yeah, very similitude with the opening parts. And with that out of the way, let's talk about the source novel. I wrote <laughs> source novel in quotation marks. <laughs> In 1959, the very same year this film came out, that's meaningful, Shirley Jackson, best known for her short story The Lottery, published The Haunting of Hill House, a gothic horror novel about a group of people investigating alleged supernatural phenomena in the titular building. Phenomena. St Sorry. Strange <laughs> happenings. Which Jackson describes obliquely test the psyches of the main characters in various ways. Jackson was inspired to write the novel after reading various accounts of 19th century psychic researchers, I also wrote that in scare quotes, investigating a haunted house and reporting their findings to the Society of Psychic Research, a totally legit institution. Having grown up in the backdrop of scientists and skeptical detectives debunking fraudulent mediums, Jackson found that these reports, scare quotes again, revealed more things about the biases of the psychic researchers than any empirical proof of the supernatural. After consuming a vast amount of literary ghost stories, Jackson wrote Haunting of Hill House as a turn-of-the-screw-style profile of a mental breakdown that may or may not involve actual ghosts. Just about any reading that I've encountered about this book has basically said it's left to the reader to uh, figure that sort of shit out on their own. Oh, 100% disagree. Eleanor's crazy as shit. <laughs> 
So you're on the uh, Henry James side of this. Uh, it opens with her talking about lions while she's trying to drive to the house, and she's like, totally not crazy. Don't know why my sister's mad at me. And it also ends with her in a car, and I'm not going to spoil it, but no, she's crazy as shit. Uh, the Haunting of Hill House was intensely successful upon release and to this day is considered one of the best modern horror novels ever written. Stephen King cites it as a personal favorite and a core influence on The Shining. The Shite Not Rose Red? Come on, Stephen King, I'm calling you out. <laughs> Richard Matheson also swiped liberally from the book for his 1971 novel Hell House, which was also turned into a very similar movie to this one. I don't know that I've seen Hell House, but it's going on the list. <laughs> Uh, the Haunting of Hill House has two legitimate film adaptations. Uh, the 1963 version, released under the title The Haunting, was a critical and commercial success. It's amazing, and you have seen it referenced in so many movies, I promise you. A 1999 remake was considerably less successful. Oh my god, but that movie came out like the same year as a remake of the movie that we literally just watched. Yep, we'll be getting to that. Owen Wilson. Uh, there was also a 1964 stage version, a 1997 radio drama, and a 2018 TV miniseries. Which we watched an episode of! Yes, Charles is a big fan of the 2018 series. I am! It's like a Weird Waldo of, like, dead people. Uh... House on Haunted Hill is not an official adaptation of the Jackson novel. Uh, William Castle rushed off the movie to capitalize on the success of the book. The title of the movie was tweaked to the narrow precipice of not being legally actionable for a copyright <laughs> infringement suit. It As has similar overlapping themes, though. Like, I genuinely didn't know that. I thought it was based off the book. I'm like, that's very different, but okay. <laughs> no, they took the Jackson novel and filed the serial numbers off. Essentially, this is the 1959 version of a straight-to-video knockoff like Transmorphers or The Revengers. Well, I thought you were going to be like, oh yeah, it's like Nosferatu. They didn't want to get suits. They did everything a little bit off. Yeah, I like that too. Although Nosferatu famously lost its lawsuit. Ha ha. I hate Nosferatu. I still get nightmares about that fucking hand. Well, it's mostly the Are You Afraid of the Dark episode that did it for you, right? Probably. I think that must have been my first exposure, but knowing our childhood and our father, I could have seen it in between Rugrats episodes, so who's to say? <laughs> House on Haunted Hill was mostly shot on sound stages, reflective of 1890s Victorian furnishings, complete with gas chandeliers and sconces. Exterior shots were of the historic Ennis House, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1924. And you and Jacinta spent like a full five minutes talking about how fucking ugly that house is. It looks like somebody made it in Minecraft. It was gross. So you're not a modern ar architecture buff? No, I am not. Like, honestly, it, it all looks like the Brady Bunch house to me. The Ennis house would later be used in The Day of the Locust, Blade Runner, and episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, Predator 2, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Twin Peaks would build sound stages based on the interiors of the Ennis house, particularly the uh, cathedral area. Promotional art for the movie, however, would not depict the Ennis house or anything on the sound stages. They would instead portray the house as a four-story Romanesque structure. That sounds really pretty. Yeah, a lot prettier than uh, the Frank Lloyd Wright building that you're not a fan of. You know what? People are allowed to like Legos. I just don't have to. 
The skeleton for the acid vat was a real human skeleton, which wasn't unusual for the time. It was simply faster and cheaper for Castle to buy a skeleton from the university's biology department than to have a special effects crew build a fake one from scratch. Uh, most of the other special effects were repurposed from haunted houses found in carnivals and amusement parks. Which was honestly really fun, knowing that fact when we went in to start watching the movie, because Jacinta, was sorry, my roommate and I kept pointing, being like, oh, I bet that came from the carnival. Yeah, severed head, little monster hand reaching out. <laughs> little baby rat skeleton. That witch dummy that just sort of kept getting wheeled around, and you're like, no, it's floating. Oh my god, and they're like, no, no, it's just his blind wife. And I'm like, why did you leave her in the cellar? And why doesn't her knees bend when she walks? Like, that's <laughs> clearly just a ghost. You liar. As stated before, Castle often used cornball gimmicks and inflammatory rhetoric to drum up publicity for his movies. This involved, for instance, handing out life insurance policies to theater patrons to ensure that they'll be covered in case they die of fright while watching the movie. Which is amazing. Is he the guy that electrocuted people, but like not like a lot? Yes. <laughs> he also planted stooges in the audience to run screaming from the theater at key moments, although that was an old thing. They were doing that in the 30s. I would hate that passionately, and that would ruin my movie-going experience. And as Cheryl already intimated, Castle installed motors into theater seats to deliver vibrating jolts during jump scares, uh, particularly for the film The Tingler. Um, so when I went to see um, Avatar, I saw it at one of those, like, theaters where they give you, like, extra stuff. So there were speakers in the chair and, like, little misters. And it was also incredibly distracting, and I hated it. So I don't, <laughs> as much as I'm like, I wish they do these gimmicks. I apparently actually don't like them at all. But like also, too, I want to have said that somebody dropped the fake skeleton on me while I was watching a movie. <laughs> yes, House on Haunted Hill was no different from other Castle productions. For instance, the opening of the film is a blank screen accompanied by spooky sound effects and music. The impact of the sequence is a bit lost in home viewing, but theatrical audiences were often taken in by the ambience. This scene is also occasionally credited with kicking off the trend of novelty haunting records, and that has just sort of kept going. Even today, if you go into a spirit Halloween, you'll probably find a CD next to the register of, like, spooky sound effects and music. It's also, like, all over YouTube. Yep. The gimmick most closely associated with the film, however, is, is something that Castle dubbed Emerjo. Uh, <laughs> what? In short, Emerjo occurred during the scene where the skeleton emerged from the acid. A rope and pulley system in the theater would float a plastic skeleton with uh, red light bulb eyes above the audience in the theater during that scene. You cannot see my face, but it is just pure delight right now. I fucking called it a skeleton? That's amazing! Did it touch anyone? Yes, but not on purpose. Uh, certain theaters <laughs> abandoned Emerjo when local kids found out about the gimmick and brought slingshots into the theater to bombard the plastic skeleton. That's amazing! Ooh, little fucking fuckers! That's awesome! They're like, oh, this is so cool, I'm gonna beat it up. Well, they're kids, that's what kids are gonna do. Some Emerjo equipment has survived to the present day and is occasionally used in modern screenings of the film. I am so happy. Well, that's got to be California stuff. They don't do stuff like that out here. Yeah, yeah, we don't have the 70-year-old uh, plastic skeleton pulley system. <laughs> no, 
God darn it. No, but I heard they, they just take movies more seriously out there. It's like a whole thing. And like over here, we just have our tiny little shit theaters. At this point, we should talk about the cast. Uh, first and foremost, Vincent Price is Frederick Lauren. Woohoo! He gets a little opening monologue in the beginning of the film right after the uh, owner of the house where he just sort of sets the spooky ambience. You can't lose with Vincent Price. Like, he's just the most delightful part of any anything ever. Like, have you ever seen his um, Edgar Allan Poe stuff? Yeah, I saw a couple of the Corman uh, Poe movies. I don't even, I don't like Poe. I really don't, which is sad because I know that our, our sister Sarah does really like Poe. But, like, I love Vincent Price's Edgar Allan Poe stuff, his Tales of Terror. Yeah, he is one of the greatest hams in horror cinema, which is saying something. But you want him to keep hamming it up. He's like the Liberace of horror. Also my favorite Muppet Show episode. Anyways, <laughs> Castle liked telling stories about how he initially met Price and started a conversation with him. And Price started complaining about being passed over for a role, which allowed Castle to smell blood in the water. He brought up his little Hill House project. And by the end of the chat, Castle, who apparently Price saw as a kindred spirit in the hammy horror movie stuff, had agreed to a two-picture deal. The other film was The Tingler. Ah! You know we have to watch that now, right? Uh, Yes, the electric shocks, in case you were wondering, happened when Price turns, looks into the camera, breaking the fourth wall, and goes, The Tingler is in the theater right now. I'm so happy! That sounds amazing! Uh, some people say, claim that Price's line in the film, It's Close to Midnight Lance, was appropriated by Michael Jackson in Thriller, which does feature Price. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but maybe it was. I mean, I mean, I was about to say, I'm like, he was, he contributed to that. Like, what do you mean appropriated? <laughs> There's two artists working together to make something delightful. All right, second build in this is uh, Carol Omart, who was uh, Annabelle Lauren, Price's wife. She was such a queen. That was amazing. Yeah, I really liked her interplay with Price. They played off each other very nicely. I know. I didn't didn't want the movie to continue going the way I knew it was going to go. I'm like, just stay married. I want to keep watching this. Get a sitcom. I think I would have liked the movie better if they had some elaborate plot to bump off the partygoers one by one for a mystery reason revealed later, and they're actually working together or like um they were just like passive aggressively doing it to like try to keep showing each other up like they were both working with all of them anyways omar was briefly considered to sing the theme song for the movie and there were lyrics written but at the last minute they decided to scrap that idea and decided that hill house didn't need like a james bond theme song that's very disappointing i'm like is this like how like mario was supposed to have lyrics like my heart's broken now (laughs) (laughs) well you can look up the lyrics online and then imagine omar singing them i guess I mean, I guess I'll have to. There's no alternative. (laughs) All right, then we have Richard Long as Lance Schroeder. He's supposed to be our hero. He's wearing an ill-fitting suit throughout the whole process. It feels like a little kid who's wearing daddy's suit, even though he looks like he's, you know, 10 years older than me. But it's 1959, so he's probably eight years younger. Honestly, like, that old, like, 1950s kind of, like, man-man character just in my mind is just, like, the personification of America at the time. 
They're like, oh no, America came back in. Oh no, he's waving a gun and telling women that they're being hysterical. Go wait in the closet. Yeah, <laughs> he got stuck in the house. It's back in the day of lead paint and they're smoking in the delivery room. So yeah, everyone looks like they stopped getting carded when they were 12. And um, then we have Alan Marshall as Dr. David Trent. Ugh, also could not stand him. Uh, because of the hysterical? I mean, he has a very good job of delivering that line, but no, he has that, like, it's not the transatlantic accent or whatever, but, like, I don't know, the, like, I am a professional man accent. It just makes me want to smack him. <laughs> so when he fell into the acid, no tears were shed on our side. No, not even a little bit. He's just like, ha, 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 I'm going to walk out of the corner. Jerk. Uh, then we have Carolyn Craig as Nora Manning. She had a distractingly long neck, uh, but no, she was a phenomenal actress. I think she did a really good job screaming and running around in those heels. Very good scream queen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, underrated scream queen. Just put her up with the usual folk. We have Elijah Cook Jr. as Watson Pritchard. He was also in the movie. Well, you know, he would rant about how his dead brother's ghost was coming to get him, and then he'd drink a lot. He was, like, especially good at being, like, not terrifying. Like, that man ran up to so many people with a knife, and they were like, stop drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you need a very special kind of character actor to pull that off. I'm brandishing a knife and no one's taking me seriously. <laughs> All right, Ruth Bridgers is played by Julie Mitchum, Robert Mitchum's sister. She wasn't particularly fond of acting. This was her seventh and final role, including Slave Girl in the Ten Commandments. I can see why she wasn't that fond of acting. These aren't, like, super exciting roles. Yeah, uh, she wears a distractingly opulent ring in the film. That was actually her ring. Castle thought that it was neat and spooky and gave it an extreme close-up, more or less on impulse. (laughs) That's awesome. And then also, check out this ring. All right, promotional materials for this Hill House movie included a woman being hanged on the poster and another poster with Price holding a severed head, both of which prompted criticism from several newspapers. Castle then encouraged exhibitors to lean into the ads being pulled while promoting the screenings. That's clever. Good job. Well, Castle probably commissioned that art hoping that something like that would happen. Still, like, very clever. Good job. Uh, House on Haunted Hill was a success. It was made for $200,000 and made $2.5 million in rentals. It has caught on in the uh, collective consciousness of the B-movie sleaze folk. Elvira has cited it as one of her personal favorites. It's a fun movie. Like, you, you can't deny. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a trip. In addition to the aforementioned Joe Dante, John Waters also considers Castle to be a prime influence on his own work. I can absolutely see that. Yeah, I uh, came across this just like rant where Waters just waxed rhapsodic about Castle's gimmicks. His particular favorite was the institution of the coward's corner. One of his other movies, he would just like stop the film and be like, if this is too much for you, you leave the theater right now. And there's like little yellow footprints in order to um, indicate that you are running away. I mean, that's cute, but also would piss me off because I'm like, but you're ruining the pacing. Yeah, and the film would be like, run away, chicken, run away. And if you got outside, there were there were trained nurses who would take your blood pressure in case you were afraid. That's very cute. 
However, one of the more noteworthy uh, bits for this is that Alfred Hitchcock noticed that this movie made an ample return on its extremely low budget and used that to convince producers to greenlight Psycho. I mean, okay. <laughs> uh, Castle, who was a very big Hitchcock fan, directed the Psycho knockoff Homicidal in 1961. I didn't even know about that. Uh, that one was the aforementioned Coward's Corner. <laughs> House on Haunted Hill got a riff tracks in 2009 with a live performance by Mike Nelson and his buddies in 2010. I'm not a big fan of the live performance ones, but I love me some riff tracks. The audience is too loud sometimes. Yeah, I can believe that. House on Haunted Hill got a 1999 remake. Ah! Produced by Terry Castle, <laughs> William's daughter. It is. You haven't seen that one either, right? No, I have not. The CGI in that movie will stay with you, Ryan. It stays with you. It's like a... Um, because it's so good? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? With like the um, that weird blotchy like ghost that like is like coming towards you? Uh-huh. That's like the whole movie CGI. <laughs> but I don't think they used puppets. Terry Castle would also produce 2001's 13 Ghosts, another remake of one of her dad's movies. Okay, but you have to understand that I double featured those so much in my teens and 20s. Like, I, my favorite really cheesy ghost effects are from those movies. Kindred Spirit. But also you can't like, you can't rewatch the Hill House one. Like it's just so bad. But also watch it. 100% watch it. House on Haunted Hill 1999 Redux got middling reviews but decent box office, leading to the direct-to-video return to House on Haunted Hill in 2007. Which we just saw the ad for and we have to watch. By all accounts, it is a turd sandwich. Another remake of House on Haunted Hill is currently in development, although it's been in since 2017, so who knows. Terry Castle is also shopping around a prequel to the original film that she has written. Like a prequel to this, or there was another film that she wrote? A prequel to the 1959 House on Haunted Hill. Is it just Vincent Price's marriage? Because I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we come to themes. Uh, the first thing I wrote down was the Hollywood gimmick. Okay. Uh, we've covered in previous episodes how Hollywood's power and reach declined sharply in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, there were a number of factors that caused this. The rise of popularity in television, which took audiences away. Uh, white flight to the suburbs, making largely urban theaters less accessible to a wider swath of the population. And what I think was a kind of the rusty dagger, the 1948 Supreme Court ruling, United States versus Paramount Pictures, that made it illegal for studios to participate in block booking. What's block booking? Okay, up until 1948, it was legal for Hollywood studios to also own theater chains. Okay, yep, I could see how that could be <laughs> not fair for competition. So, yeah, they could dictate what the theaters would carry. They could talk to other studios to make sure that, you know, they were spread far apart to avoid competing against each other, like they're the fucking mafia. And another thing they could do with the theaters would be like, okay, you want this popular thing that everybody wants to see? You also have to screen this bullshit. Yep, 
Yep, I could I could see that just being like, oh wow, every theater's playing like just the same things. So yeah, the Supreme Court in 1948 decided that that qualified as a vertical monopoly and that they couldn't do that anymore. Great. So they were basically iced out of guaranteed income. All the studios took a major hit because of that. It'd be nice if that sort of thing, while it's technically illegal nowadays, it is not enforced, particularly as in the post-Reagan era. Like telecommunications companies like Comcast and Verizon, they also have a comparable practice where like if you're in a certain neighborhood that's Verizon territory, you can only buy internet from them. Yeah, no, I know. And then you don't even get the fast internet if you live one house over from where it's blocked off. And it doesn't matter how much you go to the store and complain. They can't move it one house. And technically that doesn't violate any antitrust laws, but yeah, it does. Anyways, many attempts were made to lure audiences back into theaters during the 50s and 60s. 3D movies is probably the most popular and well-known gimmick. It was a solid Jason movie, Ryan. They increased the budgets to lavish proportions. You know, the type of money that you put in that uh, television couldn't compete with. You know, that worked for Ben-Hur and The Sound of Music and then not so much for other things. Oh, God. It was it Hey, Dolly or something? Uh, Hello, Dolly. That is often seen as the movie that killed the golden age of Hollywood. <laughs> I can feel Sylvan, like, just, like, screaming in the distance. <laughs> like, you're not saying it right. And then there's fucking Smell-O-Vision. That one I still feel like it's just Willy Wonka and you're all lying to me. <laughs> <laughs> Is it snozberries, Ryan? No, there was a period where Hollywood thought it was a good idea to, like, spray scented gas into the theaters in order to correspond with scenes. That seems like Walt Disney bullshit. Yeah, it didn't work out. <laughs> Castle wasn't the only huckster in this idiom. He was just the most eccentric. And I do think that a lot of these gimmicks are reflective of what's happening now. Cheryl already described, you know, those, like, extra special um, theater seats that, like, play ambient music. And some of them do have the seat jolts. I swear, the one that I was in, it had, like, air and it had, like, mist. And I don't want to get damp watching a movie. It's just not my thing. Yeah, that's not super different from what Castle was up to. And, like, I have I have anxiety. Like, I have a condition. So, like, I need to... Somebody needs to tell me that my chair is suddenly going to start making noises at me. Like, you can't surprise me with that. I mean, that's why I hated Avatar so much. Yeah, one guy complained about uh, Smell-O-Vision and that he saw the movie when he had a cold and he believed it interfered with his ability to understand the plot. Because of the smell? Yeah, because he couldn't smell the gas. <laughs> Other parts are reflective of the current Hollywood landscape with, you know, theaters shrinking and closing and all the studios putting hundreds of millions of dollars into these superhero movie tent poles and low to mid-budget stuff like rom-coms and westerns and stuff. They usually just put them right on television where, you know, it makes more sense there and streaming. And, uh, yeah, I don't know how they're going to wiggle their way out of this one. I wouldn't be surprised that if, like, within our lifetimes, movie theaters don't go away entirely, but they shrink to the point where they're kind of a niche thing. Not unlike live theater. Oh, I, my uncultured ass was just like, oh, like drive-ins! <laughs> <laughs> Alright, the next thing I wrote down was terror versus horror. Okay, this feels like a Jeopardy category. <laughs> In literary criticism, these two are seen as not synonyms, but dividing lines in how we define scary stories. 
in this idiom, terror is focused on suspense and building up to a fearful reveal or just twisting the knife of uncertainty. Horror, on the other hand, is more about throwing gore and nastiness at the audience in order to immediately trigger discomfort or revulsion. What do you think they would have qualified the Invisible Man as? <laughs> Keep going. Are we talking about the uh, original Universal one? Yes. Cause I'd, I'd say that's horror. Okay. Yeah, it's throwing its weirdness at you, at your face. It's not building up to anything. Well, then there's a lot of suspenseful murder scenes because he's running around naked. I suppose, yeah, you never know quite where he is when he's naked. Uh, yeah, as Cheryl already intimated, most scary stories employ both tactics, but generally one is more prevalent than the other. I would say that Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House sounds like terror, whereas William Castle's House on Haunted Hill is more horror. <laughs> I just keep thinking of that lady that they're clearly just wheeling around set. <laughs> so horrifying. Whee! Yeah, House on Haunted Hill is like 75 minutes long. They're not drawing anything out. <laughs> Tap dancing skeletons. I mean, they saved that part for the very end, but it just, just kept, kept going on there. And that dovetails me into my final point, the Apollonian versus the Dionysian. I think Apollo was a jerk. That's how I land. Well, they're all jerks. Dionysus is kind of a jerk, too. He saved more people. He saved ladies that were stranded on islands and shit. Like, Apollo fucking was just like, sleep with me. And then Cassandra was like, no. And then he was like, fine. You know what? I know that I gave you the gift of being able to, like, predict the future, but fuck you. Now nobody's gonna believe you. Apollo is an asshole. I have opinions. Anyways, I'm being a little less literal in this. I am talking about, and I have brought this up on prior episodes, Friedrich Nietzsche's interpretation of it. In his art criticism, yes, he did art criticism, he did not categorize art by genre, theme, structure, historical context, or any of the other formats usually employed by cultural critics. He classified art as either Apollonian, rational, constructive, and idealistic, or as Dionysian, emotional, instinctive, and spiritual. Nietzsche believed that lots of art contained elements of both, like terror or horror, but that modern art lent towards Apollo. He did, however, consider this to be a bad thing. He claimed that humans are emotional creatures as well as rational beings. He felt that art that refused to acknowledge our baser realities was an incomplete view of the human experience. You know, because life isn't wholly beautiful. Truth can often be ugly. Uh, a vital part of the artistic experience is to contemplate suffering and death from the vantage point of safe observance. Uh, Nietzsche did not talk about horror as a storytelling genre. His art criticism mostly focused on how pre-Socratic Greek tragedies were, in his opinion at least, the perfect balance of Apollo and Dionysus. Still, while reading about his ideas, I kept thinking about how horror movies played into Nietzsche's concept of Dionysian art. Horror is usually crude. Horror is usually irrational. Horror does not depict objective reality nearly as often as it depicts a landscape distorted by the fears dwelling at the basis of our minds. You know, even campy horror, like what we're just talking about here, reflects this as it allows us to laugh at the most gruesome parts of being a human. You know, smiling at the absurdity of the unknowable void is, by some philosophies, especially stuff that is answering to Nietzsche, the only sensible thing that we can do. That was heavy, man. That was good. 
something that I read about horror movies when I was a small child, like 11 or 12 years old, is um, horror allows us to be safely scared. And that's sort of hung with me ever since. And that's how I've always approached the medium whenever I think about it. Here's this awful stuff that we all have to deal with that's just hanging over us. And it's this sort of Damocles. And how are we going to think about it in an area that doesn't just drive us up the wall? Horror is a good way to look at stuff like that and not deny it. And I do think that it makes us more well-rounded. There was a uh, very recent Sarah Scribble strip that depicted like superhero fans, people sitting around doing cosplay and wearing t-shirts and stuff. Then you see the fantasy um, the fans who are like, you know, wearing elf ears and playing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. And then you see the horror fans, which is just people dancing around with sunshine and rainbows. (laughs) I mean, all of those are true. But in my experience, they're all the same people. Yeah, I do think that that Venn diagram has a lot of overflow, but um, there's another similar comparison. It was like what Hayao Miyazaki looks like in real life, where he's like this dour, depressed dude who doesn't have nice things to say to anybody. He's just very prickly and mean and difficult. Really? Uh, yes, that is his reputation. Like, Spirited Away is about Miyazaki apologizing to all the young people that he's been kind of difficult and obtuse to. Oh. Whereas on the other side of that, you have Junji Ito, who by all means is a giant, lovable teddy bear of a human being. What did he direct? You don't know. I'm terrible with names. That hole in the wall is in the shape of me. It is meant for me. No. Oh, he is this horrific manga anime director who does like Cronenbergian body horror and existential nightmare stuff. Uh, You're gonna have to show me, I don't know. This is a weird gap. I figured you would know Junji Ito better than anyone I know. I think that my roommates talked about it before. I think there's something new streaming. But uh, yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't come across it. I watch a lot of like... This is such a weird gap. I am freaking out. I watch a lot of anime that's usually like historical based. (laughs) Better it's like all in space. Like I don't have that much that's like not... I, I know you would think, but I, I like a lot. I lot I watch a lot of like live action horror, but uh, no, not a lot of animated. Well, down the road, I guess we're doing a Junji Ito anime. Yeah, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm not opposed, but it's just not come up. All right, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything about House and Haunted Hill that you want to talk about before we sign off? I mean, outside of that slumber party that we're gonna co-host the little coffins. <laughs> Now you're spoiling it for everyone who's listening to this. Dun, dun, dun. We'll just put the episode up after our sleepover. (laughs) Duly noted. Thanks for listening, everybody.